This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 13th, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. This week, we're focusing on a special issue in science on cooling in a warming world. First up, I talk with senior news correspondent Elizabeth Panisi about how to stay safe when things heat up, whether you're running a marathon or fighting a fire. I also talk with researcher Po Chun Shu about the future of cooling textiles. Can we save energy? Can we avoid CO2 emissions? If we're wearing clothes designed to keep us cool and we stop cooling our buildings down so much. Now we have senior news correspondent Elizabeth Panisi. For this week's special issue on keeping cool in a warming world, she wrote about how our bodies deal with high heat or don't. Hi, Liz. Hi, how are you? Good. Not too hot, not too cool. That's good. That's good. (laughs) We're going to talk about what happens when we get too hot. But first, let's talk about how our bodies deal with lesser amounts of heat in a more day-to-day way. Well, the body tries to maintain a certain temperature all the time. You're always generating heat through metabolism. You're always losing heat to the outside world. Most of the time, you're thermoneutral is what they say. But if you're outside and it's warm out or if you're exercising, you can start getting hotter and your body senses that you're getting hotter and it has a bunch of things that it does to keep you cool. So the first thing that happens is the blood vessels in your skin get larger and this brings more fluid closer to the skin, which is cooler than the interior of the body and you lose more heat that way. If that doesn't work, then you start sweating you can sweat up to two liters an hour. All this sweating affects the amount of fluid in your body. And if you're losing too much fluid, the heart has to work ever harder by pumping harder or by pumping faster to keep blood getting to all the parts of the body that it needs to get to. As you lose more fluid, sweat out more fluid, your adrenal glands signal the kidney to stop filtering out water and conserve water, and you feel very thirsty. Okay. How about if you get even hotter? If you keep getting hotter, 
either because you're working too hard, like running a marathon and you're not slowing down or working in the field and trying to pick as many things as you can, or if it's just too hot out, 105 degrees or something like that. Just going to insert here that that's 40 degrees Celsius. Then your body will keep getting hotter and hotter. And that's where you can enter the danger zone. When our core temperature hits the danger zone, what goes on in the body? So first, you might feel a little dizzy, a little crampy, a little fatigued. And if you don't take care of yourself by getting in a cooler place or slowing down and not exercising, heat stroke can develop. And in heat stroke, sometimes the body just stops sweating altogether. Body core temperature can get really high and you can go unconscious and organs can start to fail. The elderly are particularly at risk from heat. What makes them so vulnerable? They are most at risk for heat stroke because as they get older, their bodies are less and less able to react the way that it needs to, to keep cool. There have been situations during heat waves where older people are in their homes with the windows closed and don't realize they're not sensing how hot they are but their bodies are working harder and harder. Their heart is working harder and harder to get the blood flow out to the skin to try and cool them. And if you have a heart condition, it can stress the heart and cause a heart attack. And they don't even realize that this is happening to them. So this is what you want to avoid, heat stroke, overheating your body. And surprisingly, to me anyway, this is a very active area of research. There's a lot still being studied. Let's start with this cool study that you looked at of firefighters working outside to put out wildfires. A lot of people assume we know everything we need to know about heat, but a lot of those assumptions are not really based on research. And this was the situation among firefighters that work outdoors and fight forest fires or wildlands fires, as they say. For example, they've always assumed that if a firefighter goes down, as they say, from heat while fighting a fire, they've always assumed it's because the firefighter is dehydrated. But what this study showed is that dehydration is a factor, but not the main factor. When you say goes down, do you mean that they're incapacitated? Right. Just is working slower and slower and maybe feeling dizzy and very fatigued and not really able to focus on things. Mm -hmm. So we know it's not dehydration that's making these firefighters go down. What is it that happens and how did the researchers figure this out? Over the course of three years, they had 300 volunteers, firefighters on the job who wore special monitors that measured all sorts of physiological and environmental conditions. And what they found is that when the firefighters hike into where they have to fight the fire, so they usually go and set up camp somewhere a mile or two away from where the active fire is. And every morning they get up and they hike there and they wear a lot of equipment and they're Clothing is very heavy because it's fire resistant. And that what they found is that that hike can cause the body temperature to rise and put them at risk of getting a heat-related injury once they're actually fighting the fire. 
So it's not the external heating from being near a fire. It's more just the labor of getting to the place that puts people in danger. Exactly. Huh, that's really surprising. So what does that suggest that they do to keep safe in the future? A couple of things. One is they can really pay attention to how much weight they're carrying into the fire and make sure they pare it down as much as possible. Another thing that they can do is as they hike in every 10 minutes, take a little bit of a rest and let the body cool down a little bit. And drinking water is good, but it's not going to solve overheating. No, it's not going to solve the problem. Let's talk more about extreme exercise, extreme exertion, things like marathons, when lots of people decide to run for a very long time very fast. What kinds of research is being done in this context? So this is called exertional heat stroke, and this is the kind of heat stroke that the firefighters experience and that Mm -hmm. runners will experience as well. And another group of people that tend to have exertional heat stress are military recruits in boot camp. At the University of Connecticut, for example, they study that by heating up a room and getting volunteers to load up like they were soldiers with all their rifles and military gear and do exercise, either walk on a treadmill or lift things up. And so they check and see how the volunteers react to different conditions. For example, if they don't have water, how quickly do they start having problems from heat? If they do have water, how much water is good to have? Is this the one where they measured thirst and they found that we're not so good at knowing how much water we need in these conditions? Yes, so that's true. What they found is that people tend not to drink enough water to rehydrate themselves. Their thirst is quenched sooner than their bodies are rehydrated. What they recommend is that you drink on a specific schedule that's been laid out beforehand to keep your hydration levels at the right thing, whether you're thirsty or not. The other marathon or running study you talked about focused on, what was it, a 12K? Um, Why was that a good place to study this? These Connecticut researchers would be the hyperthermia response team for a road race in Cape Cod that's 12 kilometers long. And 12 kilometers is kind of that magic spot where it's a long enough race that your body can really heat up, but it's a short enough race that people run the fastest they can so they can really put themselves in a danger zone. And they've had dozens of hypothermia cases each race. And what they've been doing is monitoring, okay, how how hot are these races when they collapse? How quickly can the races be cooled down? What's the most effective way of cooling them down? Can't just drink water. Exactly. What they realize is that if you want to make sure a person recovers from heat stroke, you need to get their body temperatures back down toward normal within 30 minutes. Before race, they set up all these basically bathtubs full of ice water or cool water. You're in that water for 15, 20 minutes. It's not like you go in and out of the water. That's a short-term effect from getting overheated. But there can be long-term damage to the body from being repeatedly overheated. People have begun to study laborers who work in hot conditions, farm workers who are out all day in the sun, day after day, miners who are down in hot mines. And one of the things 
they've noticed is that people who have chronic exposure can sometimes develop kidney problems. There's also now evidence that when you're hot, you're not thinking as clearly. So the incidence of workplace injuries goes up. Mm-hmm. How many people are in hot spots now where they're consistently exposed to these high temperatures? And what are the predictions for how bad it will be as climate change amps up the temperatures in certain parts of the world? There are an estimated 1.71 billion workers at risk of heat problems. In the United States alone, farm workers experience an average of 21 days in summer where the heat index is above what the federal government considers safe. That number will double by 2050 and triple by 2100. Living in hot conditions and not having access to air conditioning, you acclimate to some degree. But the number of people exposed to these hot conditions And the number of days that these hot conditions are really unbearable is definitely going to increase as climate change happens. This brings up a really interesting point that you cover in your story, and that's that the body has a capacity to adapt to high heat. You do it over and over again every day. Your body's going to do things differently, and that means that you'll be safer. Can you talk about how the body adapts over time if it has repeated exposure to high heat? The body adapts in several ways. Number one, you start sweating sooner. Number two, you just have a higher fluid volume in the body. So you have more basically sweat you can sweat. And your heart adjusts so that it can cope with the need to pump harder and faster without working as hard as when you're not adjusted to the heat. I was surprised to learn that air conditioning can actually undercut this effect, that your body's not going to go through that heat adaptation if you go into an air-conditioned room at the end of the day. That's right. It does undercut the effect. If you're concerned about the effect of air conditioning on your ability to adapt to heat, you could also turn to a fan. It turns out fans are pretty effective at keeping bodies cool. Research in Australia have been looking into this for quite a while now. They have a room that you can heat up and they put people of all ages, the elderly, the disabled people with heart conditions in a room where they try different techniques and they find that a fan can work just as well as air conditioning in terms of comfort level and in terms of productivity, for example, for workers. And if a fan isn't available, say if you don't have electricity, then dousing with water can help as well. When you started reporting this, were there things you thought we knew and then you find out we didn't know and people are still doing research into them? I thought, well, 37 degrees is the normal body temperature. And what every expert will tell you is that, well, 37 degrees is not really the normal for everybody. And it can vary quite a bit. I also thought, as the firefighters did, that If you drink enough, you'll be fine, and you're not. I also didn't realize that a key thing in the development of heat stroke is the fact that the fluids in your body are not able to do what they need to do because you're sweating so much. And it's made me very conscious about why hydration is so important. Thank you so much, Liz. Well, thank you. Stay cool.
Elizabeth Panisi is a senior news correspondent for Science. You can find a link to her feature story and all of our cooling content at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Next, I talk with Po Chun Shu about the latest in cooling textiles. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. So in our first segment for the cooling special issue, we talked about how the human body deals with heat. Now we're going to talk about how our clothes can help with that. Po Chun Shu wrote an insight piece on engineering cooling textiles, and he's here to talk about it. Hi, Po Chun. Hello, Sarah. Hi. So I love this idea that's, you know, you talk about some cooling textiles as being invisible in the infrared spectrum. They're obviously visible to the naked eye, but if you're looking at them in IR, you can't see them. Why might this be something desirable for someone designing textiles that are cooling? Well, first of all, the fact that we can see people through the thermal camera means they are emitting radiation and or heat. So then the question is really how to maximize such heat to dissipate from your human body. And to make this textile invisible in, in thermal radiation serve that purpose perfectly. These kinds of clothes basically let heat radiate out to the environment. And that's not something that people have really looked to do with clothing that did temperature regulation in the past. People have usually looked into like sweat or vapor, that kind of cooling mm -hmm. mechanism. Very few people look at the radiation part. But in fact, if you do the numbers, you'll find that it's actually about two-thirds of the contribution, that kind of uh, heat management. It's a huge deal if you can engineer the textile to be super transparent to uh, your thermal radiation. That would be significantly improve the cooling performance. What's an example of cooling technology that focuses on evaporation, on sweating? If you look at the cooling textile, cooling fabrics on the market, usually they refer to quickly transporting your moisture or your sweat away so you can evaporate faster. But that mechanism will not work if you don't sweat at all. And that's our daily life. When we're in the building, you don't sweat that much, but you still want to have this cooling textile. So in return, you can crank up the temperature setting for your air conditioning, and that's going to be a huge energy saving for the environment. What kinds of materials have been looked into that are transparent to infrared? The most suitable material would be polyethylene, which is basically what we use for plastic bags. But the downside is that for a simple plastic bag, it's usually not breathable. And if you look at most kind of a plastic bag, it's transparent and invisible, which is apparently not a good idea. Yeah. Then we need to engineer photonic properties, so make it 
still infrared transparent but visibly opaque and also have all kinds of visibility, moisture transport, those kind of wearability requirements. Right, because we just talked about sweating and cooling by that route. But if you wear a plastic bag, you're going to sweat in a plastic bag. Right. Do you have any numbers on how much energy this could save if people were wearing some of these technologies? The rule of thumb is in summertime, if you increase the indoor temperature setting by one degree Celsius, then you can probably save about 10% of the energy. Wow. So two degrees, 20%, three degrees, 0%. And is that in range for the textiles we're talking about? Yes, totally. So for the infrared transparent textile, it's been demonstrated about two to three degree cooling. So that's, like I said, about 20 to 30%. Yeah, that's amazing. I've actually seen some of this, this newer textile that's you know transparent in the IR. Is there work being done to change the feeling of it so that it's more like stuff that we wear every day? There's actually quite some research effort in terms of transforming that material into a fiber or yarn and then textile shape. From a material science point of view, we just need to change the material processing and make it more similar to what we use to in terms of a daily textile. So that has been done uh, pretty nicely. So from my personal touch experience of that textile, I couldn't really tell the difference. And of course, uh, then the next question is, can it be as durable as our normal textile? Can it be washable? Mm-hmm. What kind of uh, performance degradation it might have? All these kind of questions. And I hear it comes in different colors now. Yes. And again, the, the question is really to find the material that is colored, but infrared transparent. Is that difficult to do, to take something that's invisible in the infrared but also has different color options? Is that a difficult material science problem? Yeah, there are certainly some fundamental limits. When you talk about infrared transparency, you are basically trying to avoid complicated chemical bonds because in mid-infrared or the thermal radiation wavelength region, complicated chemical bonds tend to be absorbing those radiation, and that's not good. When we choose our material, always need to pay attention to the corresponding chemical bonds and whether it has absorption in those regions and, of course, how much color it can generate, these kind of questions. But there have been red, blue, black, I think green as well. So I believe they can make quite some color out of this already. What happens if you're in a place where it's hot outside and your body is hot? So just radiating out through your shirt isn't really going to make that much of a difference. The short answer is that this mechanism will not work, right? So (laughs) (laughs) I I can't violate the physics. But the good news is that we can always engineer this infrared-focused textile to be multimodal, right? So Mm. all we need to do is really to choose the material so it can have this infrared transparency and apply those moisture management, breathability, property of the textile. So in principle, they can work hand in hand and give you the maximum cooling performance. So it can be breathable. It can be sweat wicking. Can it also actively cool you? Can it have some kind of cooling properties in itself? For active cooling, it's a different direction for sure. And because when you talk about active cooling, then there will be energy requirement. There will be wiring for the textile. But I personally think that will be the future because our motivation is really to reduce energy 
consumption for air conditioning. And right. the most common question I got was, okay, so now you're assuming all the people, all the occupants in the building have to wear those. Otherwise, <laughs> they'll be, be hot. Yeah, they're going to be hot because I will be increasing the temperature. So that's why I think the next step is really to give more personal choice of your insulation property of your clothing. And that's where the adaptive concept comes in. And there are a lot of different technical approaches, and some are more energy intensive, but give you more cooling power. Some are energy efficient and control different uh, mechanisms. But I think in the long run, that this could be an interesting interaction between uh, human thermal smart textile with the building HVAC system that they can communicate to give you both the best thermal comfort in the most energy efficient way. Thank you so much, Pochan. Thank you very much, Sarah. Pochan Shu is an assistant professor of mechanical engineering and material science at Duke University. You can find a link to his article and the rest of the cooling special issue, including articles on keeping data centers cool and replacing vapor compression and so much more at sciencemag.org podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, it'll show you how to subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The show is edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.